0: First will be in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And now Ephesians 4, 1-3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, these scriptures, Lord. We thank you for this uh, this amazing book of Ephesians, Lord. We pray that you would guide Tom and help Tom to teach uh, what you'd have him to teach today, Lord, and help our ears to hear what you'd have us to hear today, Lord. pray these things in the name of Jesus.
1: Good morning. It is with reluctance that I come to the end of the book of Ephesians. I, I so love this book. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean it's our last time in it. But this morning, uh, we are going to look at some of the big life-defining themes that we've encountered during the course of this study in Ephesians. You'll see that my title is in this God's Beautiful Cure." For yeah but Christianity. I'm going to present several yeah but statements that I've heard from Christians in my life. A couple of which I've said in my life. And the, what you'll see is that in each of these declarations, they start with the true statement. Something that, that is, that matches up with scripture. And then immediately, there's a but clause. And the but clause effectively cancels out the true thing that was said. And we're experts at this. We are so good at this. And, and what we end up with is a compromised Christianity that doesn't actually change the way that we live. So what I, what I realize is that the book of Ephesians just rips right through these things. It clarifies it. It distills, it draws, it, it puts out on the table the absolute uncompromising truth about our union with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I'm going to do this morning is instead of me talking quite as much as usual and being the source of the words, we're going to go look into the, back into the passages of Ephesians. And don't get nervous about that. You can read, I looked at, uh, I looked at you version. And I counted the times for each each uh, chapter. You can read that's a pretty slow pace. You can read the entire book of Ephesians in fifteen minutes and, and so we're not going to do all of it but but it's not what I'm saying is it shouldn't be cumbersome for us to consult the text a lot this morning. If some of the yeah buts that I present hit really close to home, uh please don't think that I'm singling anyone out, okay because I've heard all of these. Every one of these for more than one person in my Christian life. And as I said, I've, I have uh, I've spoken some of them myself. I'm not going to move through the epistle sequentially, but I hope as we go that you'll see how how the parts tie together. The walk, I loved our worship this morning, because the walk, the commission to which God calls us, is based on that calling, right? The commission, what we are to do, is based on whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. As we've worked through the book, one of the things that I hope has been really burned in is that, that our calling as Paul presents it is not what we do, it's why we do it. It's the basis and foundation and supply line for what we do. Our our calling is whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. And the commission is very much about what we talked about this morning as it bears on our relationship with one another. Peace with one another that flows from our peace and reconciliation with God. It's about, our commission is about how you and I do life in the body of Christ. Because in order for God to fill up His church with Himself in order to overflow Him, cr- overflow Christ into the world, we have to be one. And that's what so much of the commission in this book is about. With that in mind, I'm going to start with, uh, with the first, yeah, but, and that is, yeah, but these people aren't anything like me. Now this takes many forms. And I'll give you several that I've heard. Yeah, I know these people that are sitting around me are my brothers and sisters in Christ forever. But I don't have enough in common with a bunch of them to really have close relationships with them, to be invested in their lives. Some of them have very different ethnic traditions than I do, and I don't understand theirs very well. I'm too old to relate well with the young people in the congregation, or I'm too young to relate well with the old people in the congregation, They don't like the same music I do. They don't have the same priorities I do. They don't have the same politics I do. Sometimes it feels like we speak a whole different language. Another version of this is, (laughs) yeah, I know these are my brothers and sisters. We're supposed to get along. But some of these women wear head coverings. (laughs) Some of them actually... My wife's one of them. Some of them actually... Believe all that left behind stuff. Some of them don't even, on the other flip side, some of them don't even believe there's gonna be a rapture until we're taken to heaven. Or a millennial kingdom. Some of them think so differently than I do about Christian counseling that I don't think I could ever be their friends. Some don't seem to understand how vitally important it is for Christians to take a stand on their political convictions. Some don't even think that they have to vote. Some seem to just be knee-jerk conservatives. They'll vote for anyone who will be against abortion, even if that person is a moral wasteland. Some, on the other hand, are way too liberal in their political ideology for me to ever be friends with them. Okay, those are just a few. Beloved, in the history of the world, there have rarely, if ever, been two groups of people that were more harshly at enmity with each other than Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament times. In fact, they would look at the things that I just talked about that tend to divide us, and they would say, that's child's play. What did Paul say about all the many things that so grievously divided Jews and Gentiles? Well, let's, let, let's let God deal with this. Yeah, but and I, and my kudos to Ron. <laughs> this is one of the passages you had in mind this morning. He said, "I'm not going to go to Ephesians. I'm going to leave it to Tom." Uh, y'all don't have to do that. You get double coverage is fine. But I appreciate I appreciate the heart in that. Ephesians 2, verses 11-22. to 22. This is about real peace. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is The law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself, in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God on the cross. There's peace with God that produces peace with men. By his blood, by that cross, having put to death the enmity And He came and He preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together as growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let me keep reading Ephesians 4, verses 11-16. to And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, the oneness of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now let me ask you, beloved, does God answer our objections about the vast differences that exist between us apart from our union with Christ? Absolutely. And how does he answer it? He tells us that our union with Christ makes all the rest of that stuff completely irrelevant. We have been made one new man in Christ and nothing else matters when it comes to our relationship with one another because it's our union with Christ that makes us one with each other and nothing else Nothing else touches that. Nothing else has anything to do with that. And so all the rest goes right out the window. And what we celebrate and what we rejoice in together is that we have been bound together forever as one in Jesus Christ alone. He is our oneness. What's the cure if you've concluded that you don't have enough in common with most of the people in this local body? to invest yourself deeply in the daily struggles and victories of these saints, the cure is for you to humbly agree with God about the walk that is worthy of your high calling because of your union with Christ. The next yeah but is very much related to this, kind of flows from it. Yeah, but I don't even like some of these people. Yeah, I know these Christians sitting around me are my brothers and sisters, but all their judgmentalism and hypocrisy and misplaced priorities get in the way of my own walk with God. I'm okay with coming to church on Sundays and you know sitting near them. But getting really into their lives, I don't think that's going to work. I think I do better at following Christ on my own. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul was imprisoned, house imprisonment in Rome when he wrote this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent. That means working hard, working hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now guys, if God says that it takes hard work to preserve the unity of His church, how do you think He responds when we say, God, this is hard work how do you think God responds when we complain about how messed up all these other Christians are? When He saved us and we deserved only hell? The next one, uh, again, very much along the same lines. Uh, let me let me read one more passage on that on the last one, Ephesians four. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You got that? What's the standard of forgiveness that God requires you to apply to your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's His forgiveness of you. Go read Matthew 18, the the unforgiving steward passage. It'll clarify this brilliantly. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. So how are you to love one another? What's the standard to which God holds you? The love that Jesus Christ lavished upon you. And and when was that proven? At the cross. Will you ever be required to give more to your brother or sister in Christ than Christ gave for you? Not a chance. We are not exempt from loving, unloving people. We are not exempt from forgiving people who don't forgive us. The commission that God has given to us is to walk in a manner that reflects the value and worth of what He did for us and who did it. Next one. Alright. Yeah, but I'm too messed up to build up anyone else. (laughs) Yeah, I know God says that He uses regular people to build up His body, but I'm not regular people. The people that He uses aren't struggling with the kind of stuff that I'm struggling with. My, and you can fill in the blank here, my depression, my anxiety, my insecurity, my mental illness, my social awkwardness, my, my inability to feel what other people feel, my inability to stop talking so much, my gut wrenching fear of failure, put whatever you want in that box, makes me useless to God. I see these other Christians. There there are some people in this body I see I see them working day and night serving other people. Man, they are in the trenches with other people. They are tireless. I'm just tired. Here's what God says, Ephesians. This is so it's just so direct. Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. What is that power that's at work within us? The Holy Spirit of God. You know that down payment on our inheritance? if you believe in Jesus and you've got a really messed up bunch of problems, do you have a different Holy Spirit than the guy sitting beside you? Who determines your usefulness to God? That Holy Spirit. He does. It's His power. The same power, by the way, that Paul says, raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him above all rule and authority and power and dominion In every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And put Him as head over all things to the church. His body, the fullness of Him who who fills all in all. That 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 last verse just blows me away. His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That's us. We are the fullness of Christ on this earth right now. And it does not matter, beloved, what your set of troubles are. It doesn't mean you'll do the same thing in ministering that everybody else in the body does. What it does mean is that God calls you to forgive as you've been forgiven, to love as you've been loved, to be in life with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And guys, there's nothing more therapeutic than that. I'm not discounting anything else that we believe must be done to address our struggles. But I'm saying that's God's sandbox for putting us to eternal use. And and when we do that, that's when we are acting according to what we were recreated to be and to do. So don't exempt yourself. Don't let yourself be benched by a lie. Next one. Yeah, but I don't have the self-control to resist sin. Yeah, I know God commands me to resist temptation, to stand firm against the the attacks of Satan, But, but I just don't have control over my own urges. I try. I try resisting, but so far I'm losing more than I'm winning and it's beating me to a pulp trying to do what I cannot do. It makes this whole pursuit of Christianity, of godly living, just such a burden. Does God let us get away with that one? He says, Ephesians 5, "...but do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you, such as is proper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance." in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You see how the calling determines the commission? You were formerly darkness, now you are light and the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because... The days are evil. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18, we looked at this last time. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So whose strength and whose might? His. Put on the full armor of God. Whose armor? God's armor. You remember we looked at the Old Testament passages that showed that it's all Christ's armor first? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not even your own, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up all of God's armor that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. He says it three times. Having girded your loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith by which you will be able, you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and in that same regard, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Beloved, who knows better the trickery and the strength of our enemy? You or God? Who knows better how hard it is for you and me to resist sin and to stand firm against the relentless and very effective attacks of Satan? You or God? Does God say that He has given us what we need to resist and stand firm? Do you think He knows what He's talking about? One of the most pernicious lies that a Christian will ever believe is that he has not been enabled to choose righteousness. It would make your hair stand on end to hear some of the stories that I've seen about what happens when a Christian believes that pernicious lie. Some of you have seen similar terrible tragedies. Do we have the weapons and the armor that enable us to stand or do we have to go out and kind of seek them out and then work hard to put them on? Now, God has given us His whole armor. All we got to do is take it up, put it on, and use it. The heart of that armor, the essence of that armor, is the union with Christ that He already gave us because it's Christ's armor. Do you live day by day counting these things to be true or do you live as if they aren't true? And another question, are you fighting this fierce war by yourself or together with the exceedingly dependent and exceedingly well-armed army of the living God? God doesn't intend for you to do the Christian life by yourself. Here's another one. Yeah, but I don't even know for sure if I am saved. Yeah, I know all these great promises apply to saved people, but nobody can really know if they're saved unless they have lots of faith and they live really godly lives. And and that, many say, that doesn't describe me I don't think I'll ever be able to know that I'm saved. Guys, I have heard this so many times and I've heard it from people in this body, dear, dear brothers and sisters in this body whose, whose declaration of the Gospel is rock solid, who believe that they are sinners lost in debt in their sin, who believe that the one and only payment for that debt is the blood of Jesus Christ who believe that he died and was raised from the dead they have put their faith in him but they have been told over and over that they can't really know that they belong to him unless their lives flesh it out adequately so instead of the waterfall of blessing that the first three chapters of this epistle set before us and upon which they base the life of godliness upon which Paul bases the life of godliness. Instead of that, these Christians have said to me that Christianity is a life of burdensome uncertainty. There are people in this room who have been driven to the depths of despair because they can't settle that question. In Ephesians 2, verses 4-10, through Paul writes, "...but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Now, for a minute, look just at that first paragraph, verses 4-7. through Look at it carefully and tell me what is the one and only cause in that paragraph that has taken us from being dead in our transgressions to being made alive with Christ, raised up with Him, and seated with Him in the heavenly places. What's the one and only cause? Grace. And grace means it's a gift that we didn't deserve, that we can't earn. He paid a debt I did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. In those first four verses, Paul takes us all the way from lost and dead to seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And he doesn't mention faith. And he doesn't mention works. It's all grace. Because grace is the cause. And then he says, for by grace you have been saved, he says it again, through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then he tells us where works come in. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved, it's not just being saved that produces a worthy walk, it's knowing that you're saved. The way to walk in a manner worthy of your calling is to know the worth of your calling. And you will never know the worth of your calling if you don't know it applies to you. The whole structure of this epistle makes the certainty of every believer's, true believer's salvation, the very ground of holiness. The certainty of our union with Christ is the supply line for our commission. That's why there's three chapters on our calling, and then there's the call to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, and then there's three chapters on our commission. I know that godly people wrestle with with this whole issue of assurance, and I know they don't all agree with me, and that's fine if you don't. I can't help being passionate about it because to me, it is the bedrock of godliness. And if I get to heaven and I'm wrong, God will straighten me out. But I can tell you, everything that God has done in my life to move me toward Christlikeness has been a response of gratitude for what I know I have been given in Christ Jesus. Now let me take you back real quick. Uh, Ephesians one verses thirteen and fourteen. In him, Paul says, "In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, having also believed that good news, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who's given as a down payment of your inheritance, our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory." You heard, you believed, you were sealed. Forever, signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into the, into the very presence of God. You have your down payment. This needs to be settled for, for a number of you. In order that you may walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here's another one. Yeah, but I don't feel outrageously wealthy. (laughs) Beloved, we cannot do any of this if we are not stepping into that treasure trove every day and counting the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's not just knowing that it's yours. It's standing there and beholding the beauty of your of your extravagant wealth in union with Christ on a regular basis, day by day. You can't do without that. You can't. Live the Christian life if you're distracted by all the things that tell you that you're not wealthy. And that's why so many Christians live as paupers. It's not because they don't, it's not because they don't believe that Jesus is, is, is worthy. It's because they're not beholding His worth. Ephesians 1. This is the, we did this right at the beginning. This is the most beautiful run-on sentence in the Bible. It's worth us just abiding in it, sitting down and pondering it and praying it back to God over and over, day by day. You can never get too much of this, guys. Fred Sanders in, in The Deep Things of God said, this is untamable. It's like a monster. A beautiful monster that we can't tame. It is this beautiful, marvelous, powerful Truth that pushes everything else aside. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you lack anything if you're in Christ? Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's what's going to happen to you. That's where you stand already. And that's what God is making true of you day by day in practice. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. The beloved is Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up, the gathering together into one of all things, things in the heavens and things on the earth. See, God... He didn't just save us, He brought us into His war room and showed us what He's doing and where this is going. In Him also, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory... In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. When we hear the words, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, some of us reduce that to do what we're supposed to do. And that happens when we confuse our calling with our commission. But that's a graceless understanding of all this. That basically takes the first three chapters of this book and throws them away. The only way to turn this magnificent assignment into a burdensome duty is to divorce our commission from our calling, to divorce it from those verses... And the only way that we can possibly do that is by ignoring or forgetting the first three chapters of this book. So get familiar with them and stay familiar with them and camp out in them and pray them back to God and talk about them to one another. Draw each other, beloved, let's draw each other into the treasure trove, into that room and and count the extravagant wealth that God has lavished upon us that wealth has a name, and His name is Jesus. That's one of the most powerfully blessed things that we do for one another, is to just draw each other back and and point to to Christ who is our inheritance and our wealth. The solution to undervaluing the true worth of something isn't shame over our bad math. You can be scolded over and over and over for believing that something is of too little value to be worthy to be made the focus of your whole existence. But until you become convinced that it is worthy to be the focus of your existence, the scolding doesn't change anything. Our appeal to one another is not do better. Our appeal to one another is know better the one who is our wealth. That's why Paul spends a full half of this letter counting our unfathomable riches right in front of us. That's why his prayers for all the saints so consistently are prayers that we may see and know and comprehend and be filled up with (laughs) the unfathomable riches of Christ. We're supposed to know how outrageously wealthy we are, and we're supposed to remind each other continually and, and when we do when we, when we have the beauty of Christ, when we have the declaration of our wealth standing in front of us all the time, the manifestation in Christ, you know what happens to all our yabuts yeah, yeah, they they turn into yes Lord, the supply line for godly. And effective living is our calling and our calling is whose we are and what we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ only in and through and because of our union with Him. The last, yeah, but, is... Yeah, uh, but I'm not very good at praying. Yeah, I know prayer is supposed to be a big part of my daily life, but praying is really hard to do consistently and my prayers aren't going to change anything, Jesus said that God already knows what we need before we ask Him. And when I do ask Him, when I do ask Him to deliver me from the big struggles in my life and in the lives of the people I love, so often His answer is no. So what's the point? Guys, here's the point. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers that, prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? Ephesians 3, verses 14-21, to For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that, here's what I pray for, Paul says, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses, knowing that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And let me ask you, I'm, I'm rushing here. Do those prayers sound like most of your prayers? I've been here before in this series, but guys, this is so very critical. Is this? Are these the things that we pray for ourselves? Are these the things that we pray for each other in the body of Christ? Are these the things that we pray for this church corporately that this would be what God does in us. How radically different would your prayers be if they looked more like these? How different would our prayers be that we pray together on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and at ministry group meetings and with our families if they looked more like these prayers? How would our joy be affected if we prayed more like this? How would our delight in building up the body of Christ be affected if we prayed more like this? How would our response to the struggles that we face day by day in this life under the curse be affected if we prayed more like this? You think maybe God intends for us to pray the way Paul prayed. Last very short part, what if you're not in Christ? Have you heard the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone? Have you put your trust in the absolute truth of that message? Have you trusted in the perfect person and completed atoning work, the the sin debt paying work of Christ on the cross? Do you believe that that payment, that that Savior has been made yours? If you do, then all the outrageous riches that Paul lays out in this letter belong to you now and forever together with all the saints. They're ours. Guys, they're not just yours. They're ours. And if you don't, if you're still trusting in your own ability to be good enough for God or in anything else to win you his approval, then you're still as we once all were. You're dead in your sin. You are destined to the wrath of God forever and you can't do anything about it. You can't fix it. Jesus has to be the one that fixed it. Whatever security you think you have in this life is going to go up like flash paper when Christ returns to judge all that He has created. Whatever peace that you think you have with other people is a mirage because there is no peace with anyone until you have peace with God. doesn't matter what you think of yourself. That's God's assessment of you if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Everybody here who knows Him desires with all their heart that you will share the unfathomable riches of Christ together with us now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more that we could say about this marvelous book. This is the height of practicality, Lord. This is, this is theology meeting life. Theology always meets life. Father, don't let us walk away from this and, and treat it as if it's just another thing for us to know. This is the transforming truth of our union with Jesus Christ. Make us know it. Make us camp out in it. Make us behold our Savior and Master daily and and work in us, Father, to remind each other how outrageously wealthy we are in Him. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.